This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. What's up, folks? Is your friendly neighborhood TL again. It's been a while since we put a podcast episode out. I have been struggling to balance the lives of a podcaster and a regular touring musician. I've been on tour this past few weeks and um, it's only been this week that I've had the time to get back to my uh, podcast editing and my podcast life. And the rest of what I do when I'm not on tour and in the studio. Okay, Ruhangis is a star from being a 15 year old entrepreneur who opened her own studio and label in Mauritius back in the day to the time where she made her debut at Ronnie Scott's in London with some of the most well-established and respected musicians. This story is an absolute source of inspiration and if you feel as inspired as I do, you will know exactly why I enjoyed recording this conversation as much as I did for the Third time almost. We talk about that too, how the first two didn't really work and uh, it's rare for me not to be bothered about something like that at all. Before we go ahead with the podcast though, I would want to remind you again that this is a completely independent production. So if you find any value in it whatsoever, if you find any of this insight for a helpful Please help support this endeavor by going and subscribing to our show on a podcast platform of your choice. Give us a review if you're feeling particularly generous and share the little blurbs we share on social media. It's on my Instagram page, everynowheremusic.com or even the Tapasculoting Instagram page, which you can find on the website. Last but not the least, I would also like to remind you that my artist development course is open to pre-enroll which you can do now with a straight-off 80% discount. And this is something I'm only offering for a limited period. You get a massive mammoth 80% off if you pre-enroll for the course before it launches over the next few weeks. This course has been built on three years of research and real-life experiences, both as working as a mentor with artists I talk to and my own 25-year-old career as an independent international musician. And now let's move on to this wonderful podcast episode with my dear friend Ruhandis Baichu. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Officially on tape. Welcome Ruhangis. Ooh la la. Ooh la la indeed. Hello, how are you? I'm awesome. It's so good to connect with you again. It's been too long already. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been too long. Our first attempted recording last year in London was one of the longest recording sessions we've done. That was three hours long, I remember. That was three hours long, yeah. And even though we ran into technical difficulties eventually, I, have, I don't regret a single minute. Likewise, likewise. And that grub you cooked up, by the way, definitely one of the best dinners I had in London that tour. Oh, that was uh, aubergine parmigiana. Mm. Is that a Mauritian speciality? No, not at all. I think it's Italian. Oh, well, you're pretty bloody good at it. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you loved it. 
I loved it indeed, and I loved the hang, the listening session we did, and um, Thomas joining us later on. It was just such a wonderful evening, all the right vibes, and you know, meaningful conversation, meaningful listening. It's such a privilege to be around people who actually have listening skills, like legit listening skills. One of the biggest luxuries in our lives, I'd say. Yes, I mean, it was lovely to actually get a, a peek, take a peek into your music as well. Thank you, likewise. Yeah. You just gave me one of the first topics I'd like to dig into, which is mm, getting a peek into music that really, you know, resonates with you. The earliest part of your career was in Mauritius. Yes. And uh, you did start off working as a professional singer in Mauritius. You want to take us through what that was like? It seems to have been quite a quite a kind of paradoxical experience all things considered the earlier parts of it from what i gather yes i I started singing very early i was four or five years old wow that's really early yes i started singing for the baha'i community Mm -hmm. the first and then went on to to do more music at school primary school that's where you know I entered a few competitions hmm. on the conservatoire, and then the second time I participated in Western music category, I I won the first prize. I was eleven years old, wow. but throughout these years, I um I've been singing, doing a lot of uh, charity work, yes, with music, and that was a, a fabulous experience. And in at the t- at the time, of course, I was a child. I, I didn't know anything about being a professional musician, a professional singer. And uh, it was purely to serve others at the time, wow. using my voice to share a message. What was the message? Several things, actually. Um, for example, the UNICEF. You know, the UNICEF. I was singing for the UNICEF whenever they were organizing events mm-hmm. for children. And it was all about love, unity, and how to protect children and provide education and support, um, especially deprived areas of Mauritius. Mm. And, and also later on, it was for, you know, women, children's welfare, and then also um, campaigns for prevention of AIDS wow. to raise funds for deprived areas and to provide education or support. Wow, that's a really, really noble cause to have as your message as a four-year-old singer slash musician. Yes, it was was exciting at the time. It it really felt like I had a a purpose, you know? And you were four at the time? Uh, Between the age of four to the age of 13. I was often invited um, every year actually to the state house where the president at the time was uh, organizing like a whole day for children of different you know, schools with their parents and there were concerts. Yeah. What's your earliest memory of music, the earliest train of music, first song, first musician you heard? Oh, <laughs> there was quite a few, but I think my earliest memory was Cesaria Evora, mm. singer from Cape Verde. So we say that Cap- Cape Verde. <laughs> I'm not an expert, but yeah, Cape Verde sounds like what I usually hear around mm-hmm. So it was Cesaria Evora, and uh, there was this song called Sodaji that I loved oh. very, very much. And then um, I think it was the Beatles. I remember singing Hey Jude forever. <laughs> yeah, They couldn't stop me. Yes, I loved Hey Jude. This might be a 
silly question to ask, but what kind of music was Mauritius listening to at the time? Like you say, you grew up with Beatles. Does that mean British and American music were common strains to hear on the island? Well, there, there is a, a variety of music Mauritius was exposed to. Mm-hmm. It was not easy to find music, but I've been very, very lucky. Very lucky. And my father loved music, my mother as well. Mm-hmm. And um, my uncles played guitar and my uncles used to accompany me on guitar whenever I was performing as well. Mm. My father had friends abroad and they were sending music over to him. So at the time, I was very lucky to discover Grace Jones, for example, uh, the Beatles, um, Dire Straits. Mm. This was the first records that ignited ignited my love for for music mainly yes british british music interesting you're in the british sound you wouldn't happen to be a pink floyd fan as well would you by any chance oh totally oh totally. yes bingo oh i totally. yeah, yeah, love those guys all right i like where this is headed <laughs> actually that doesn't surprise me listening to your production ethic something i want to dig into in a bit i love your work as a producer thank you um you, you say you were lucky having access to that kind of music um, does this mean most of your peers, most of the people you grew around, but didn't have that kind of access? No, nobody could relate to the stuff I was listening to. Really? In primary school, even at college, you know. And uh, that must be interesting. It was a very yeah. So it was, it was interesting. Later on in my teenage years, we had a lot of pop music that my friends were listening to, and I tried to get into that a little bit. So I sort of joined in a little bit to, you know get together with my friends. Mm-hmm. That, that was interesting. But before that, it was a very lonely place in the sense that it was me and my music, the stuff that I was listening to and nobody could relate to. Oh. There's a lot of local music that was promoted at the time. So you'd hear a lot of local artists and also a lot of Hindustani music. Really? Yes. When you say Hindustani, do you mean South Asian classical music or Bollywood music? or I'd say more Bollywood music. Oh, so Bollywood music was not foreign to you either? No, 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 not at all. That was, Interesting. you know, you could hear it everywhere. No way, I had no idea. Yes. I had no idea Mauritius has Bollywood music playing around it. Wow. Yes, 60% of the population at the time were Hindu. Huh. But um, my father had a record of Ravi Shankar. Mm. And... Um, my love of Indian classical music started there. You know, the album Passages with Philip Glass, that was incredible, mind-blowing. Fell in love with the sitar, the tabla, and, you know, I was really, really proud of my, my roots, you know, my Indian roots. When I heard this album, I was like, wow, what a rich cultural heritage <laughs> I have. I felt that I, I belong, you know, to this beauty. I remember the effect that it had on me. And of course, the fusion of music, you know, in the Indian classical music and Philip Glass, uh, Philip Glass's input on that, the whole orchestra and everything was so grand. Beautiful, beautiful. And it was an album that marked me. That is beautiful. Wow, that's fascinating. So I'm trying to summarize this. You're already active as a practicing musician by the time you're four, which is like super young. Um, and between the ages of four and 13, you already started performing in multiple capacities, varying capacities. Four. You have the 
well, for lack of a better term, for some reason, through your parents, you have the quote-unquote privilege of having access to all this music from the UK and the States, who a lot of your peers don't have access to, which makes you feel a little lonely, but also gives you this special connection to music. And you're also growing up around local island music and Indian music, which also gives you a sense of belonging and pride in your heritage. That's a very diverse stream of influences and emotions to grow around, especially at the age of four. Yes. How did you process all of this? Well, I think I've been exposed to absolutely everything at the mm. beginning, you know, starting from the Beatles, Cezanne Ivova, mm. uh, that wonderful voice, you know, Sade, Grace Jones, oh, man, uh, rock things. music, you know, the police. Uh, Dang, how I have we not played together yet, These are like the literally the music i grew up on okay on the, on the tangent how have we not made music yet together that's we need I to know, change right? that soon by the way but yeah yeah and then also there was the whole influence of french music french mm. pop music mainly mm. which you know my mum was listening to quite quite a bit actually patricia cast the rock rock operas you know like starmania and moran at the end of her career, in the last maybe 10 years of her career, she started, she, she, she went from pop rock to do jazz as well. Mm. So there was all of that, you know, uh, music. And then something happened um, around the age of 10, 11, I discovered Jan Garbarek. Uh-huh. Interesting. The whole mark of ECM, as you know. Uh-huh. And uh, that showed me a new dimension. Jan Garberg, really? That is so interesting. And I didn't know at the time that it was called, you know, jazz. I mean, it was my first encounter with jazz, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not, you know, American or like European jazz, really. Wow, I feel like we've been living parallel lives. You know, my first official legit confrontation with jazz was with Jean-Louis Ponty and Jan Garberg. I was around... Wow. Jean-Luc Ponty. Yeah, Jean-Luc Ponty and Like You know that Habit. album they collaborated on? And I, I didn't know it was jazz either at the time. And I mean, some people would debate the label jazz being used to label that music anyways. Uh, but that would be my first shave, close shave with jazz as well. So, wow. And I was in Libya at the time, <laughs> of all places in the okay. world. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, keep going. Sorry, keep keep interrupting. Yeah, uh, then that was like, of course, you know, reggae is very prominent in Mauritius. Mm. Um, my father had the, you know, the Bob Marley, Alpha mm. Blondie, you know, this kind of artists. And that was, um, you know, it was really like so many, you know, genres and styles of music that I was exposed to. Mm. I, I feel very, very fortunate, very fortunate indeed to have discovered all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I feel you. I, I think it is indeed a very fortunate backdrop to grow up amidst. Uh, that's that's beautiful, Rohangis. <laughs> when did you know you were going to be a professional musician? I was 15 when I decided, because I remember the time, 15, you're supposed to choose your subjects, you know, at college. That's a Mauritian thing. Cambridge. Right. And um, so we're supposed to choose between art, science and business. And for some reason, I picked the subject that I had the least connection with, which was business. So I went on to do economics, accounting, and, no and business studies as, as a whole. That is crazy. So did I. That's exactly what I did too in school. Incredible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, mostly because oh, this is really weird then at this point. Keep going though. Mm-hmm. So because I, I felt like art 
was not something that, you know, of course you learn techniques and stuff. And, and I did a, a three years of arts at school. Mm. But um, I never really enjoyed the classes, really, the, the teachers, the way they were. Bingo. And uh, same for science as well. I felt Bingo. like everything was so closed and they were not teaching you how to think. Absolutely. They were putting you in a very small box and whenever you would go, you would try to go out of that and really go to the spiritual side of things, you know. Yeah. You know, explore your creativity and put it on a piece of paper. Mm. I had trouble with that. I had a lot of difficulty to conform. Mm. So I thought, no, this system doesn't work for me. I am going to end up very, very frustrated. I can so relate. That's the, exactly the reason I didn't take up arts in school. I had a very hybrid schooling, just to clarify any confusion. Yeah. My primary schooling started off in London and then uh, different parts of India. And um, I finished school in India, but I had to redo school in Germany again for my higher studies. The Indian system is kind of similar to the Cambridge system too. It's ex-colony, right? Right, yes. Um, so you had had to make a choice between art, science and commerce as well. I chose commerce. It, it was the least emotional experience it was for me. I didn't give a shit about commerce you know I was like, there okay, you go. science I there care about go. arts I care about <laughs> and I don't want some archaic moron who doesn't really know what he's talking about telling me about arts and science I'll just choose uh, a subject yes. I don't care about instead for school exactly because I wasn't very impressed by my teachers at the time well I can relate to this I can mm. relate to this it's uncanny that we have all of these things in common yeah putting aside music when I was growing up when I was little I was obsessed with astronomy. Oh. So I had a huge collection of books, um, science books, you know, biology, chemistry, very complex things, you know, that would dissect a plant and show you the cells and everything. The, the tiniest things to the largest things that, you know, exist in the world that we, we know of. Mm. And I, I was fascinated by space and I was fascinated by mathematics and physics and when I went to college and we started to do, you know, science and just start practicing and start to experiment with things, I felt very limited, just the way they were teaching. And I thought, no, I'm going to do commerce. It seemed that science and, and art was something that, for some reason, I, I, I don't know how to explain, but it was within me. It's something that I had a connection with. Yeah. More than commerce. I had, you know, I had more emotions I could put there. Absolutely. I can totally relate. Um, tell me how the move to the UK happened. Was that a planned conscious decision or was it some slate of hand? Or Well, when at the age 15, I, I decided to do music. Mm -hmm. I spent three years. I collaborated with two of my friends and we set up uh, our first label. Wait, hang on a second. You set up a label at age 14 and a recording studio. 15. 15. 15. Yes, yes. We wow. were the youngest. We were the youngest on the island. Wow, wait up, wait up. You're on an island, yeah. and you're on Mauritius, and you set up a label, your own label and a recording, a recording studio at 15. Yes. Dang, um, mad because respect. I, How did that happen? <laughs> okay. So I had... One of these friends, um, he was a lot older than me. He was 19 at the time, he was 15. And the other friend was 21. One was an engineer and he was an aspiring engineer. He, he was studying like mad. He was like inside of this stuff. And uh, the other one, he had a, you know, he had a restaurant and his family was trying to get him to run the restaurant. And he 
he decided that no, he wanted to be the music producer. So he sold his part of the business. And then with that money, we decided to, to build the studio. And on my side, my parents loaned me some money as well. And then we went on and, and built the studio and started to produce artists, basically. Wow. And that went on for three years. Yeah, mm. for three years. I worked as an arranger and session singer around five albums, five, six albums. Amazing. And as a producer, maybe a dozen, a dozen albums in this span of three years. Yeah, for various artists. My respect, sister. I had no idea about this. I have big memories of you starting a record label shortly before you left for the UK. And I also remember that you were one of the pioneers on the island as well. I remember reading up on that somewhere. Yeah. But I had no idea you were that active and all that much into the thick of it. What kind of gear were you working with in the recording studio at the time? We started with very basic equipment, very basic. Uh, I think we had a pair of uh, and, a, and a stand, you know, Yamaha. Mm, oh, I love those. A pair of that. But were you working on the digital system already? Were you already into DAWs or were you working analog, tape? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. yes. We started with Cubase. At the time, new and narrow Cubase. Cubase, nice. I thought like, okay, we've got to get serious. We have to decide what we're gonna, we, we want to do. Because I already felt like I was really late, you know, in my development of music. And when, when you look what's happening out there in the world. You had a record label and a recording studio at 15 and you still felt like you were late? Yeah. That's interesting. Absolutely. I felt I was really late. I think I was at least 20 years. Were you a precocious child? Yes. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> yes. I was, I was a yeah, peculiar child. I yeah. said precocious, by the way, not peculiar. <laughs> I'd say precocious and peculiar. Yeah. That's the label I would keep getting as a kid too, precocious. Whoa. You know, on a good day, way beyond his years, quote unquote, and on a bad day, way too precocious. <laughs> uh, I didn't have a commercial recording studio or... A label, but I did have my first album out by 16, which never really, which officially has died out. Like it's, it, it's just, I've lost all traces of it, which is kind of interesting, actually. Thank you. Um, no documentation of it whatsoever. And I'd keep hearing about these kids way too precocious and people um, did feel a certain sense of, I don't know, some, on, on, again, on a bad day felt like they were threatened and on a good day felt like they were just... Uh, but yeah, um, and you see, um, I mean, you're a man and I'm a woman. Mm. And in Mauritius, I can tell you that was, uh, it was difficult to prove yourself. You had to work really, really hard. I was about to head that way, yeah. That was the next question, like, wh what's that dynamic like, being a quote-unquote female musician? I don't even like using the word female for musician. In my opinion, musician should be just called musician. But, just musician, yeah. yeah. In an ideal world, but I should be careful commenting on this as a man. But what was it like? Did you face a lot of discrimination? I would say that, you know, if you're a singer, then you're a singer. <laughs> That's how mm. they see you. They, they don't. They don't think. You know. They, they. They can't wrap their heads around. Okay. You can be also. You know. You can be an arranger, a composer, mm. a producer, a, a mixing engineer. You know. They, they, they can't wrap their heads around that. So. And you were doing all of this at the time. I was. Uh, thank God. You know. I had my these two partners of mine who were amazing. Really, really amazing. And they were mm. putting me putting me there, you know, they were pushing me, they were really supportive, 
But when I had to go and work for, for other people, it was, they see a woman first. And um, it's not always, you know, you have to really hold your ground mm -hmm. for them to take you seriously mm -hmm. and to be professional with you. Because it's, you know, not all the time, but, at, you know, several times it, it happened that, you know, they, they would ask you for something else before they, they would give you a job. Mm. I don't miss these times at all. I don't miss Mauritius for that mm. at all. And I was not only doing studio work at the time, because at, at 15, you know, my parents were not very supportive at first, you know, mm. of what I was doing. They had their views and opinions of, you know, the music industry and that it was not a serious thing uh, because musicians don't have a status in Mauritius. Hang on, what does that mean? They don't have a, an artist status. That's interesting. Yes, yes, still now. They're still fighting for it. Basically, it's not a real job. So they're not entitled to a tax number or any registration or what's the deal? Uh, I'm not sure. My professional life, I'd say, really started here yeah. uh, in England. Yeah. Um, when I decided to, to get into the music, I had to learn the piano, for example. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to learn the piano. Mm -hmm. So I had to purchase a piano. And mm. uh, my parents, not being supportive of, of, of that venture... You know, told me, well, you'll have to find the money. You'll, you'll have to, to work for it. You know, we, we want you to go to, to college. We want mm -hmm. you to go and study business, <laughs> you know, and get a, a, a normal job like everybody else, you know. A real job. Where are you going to go? That's what they were saying. Where, where are you going to go? Are you going to go and sing in hotels? Yeah. Because whether you become a, a teacher in Mauritius or you become, you, you go and sing in hotels at the time now, things are more open, you know, there are more um, opportunities mm. where um, there are organizations exporting Mauritian artists abroad, but it's only a handful of artists that have this opportunity now. So it was very, you know, you would end up like, you know, in a, like a fishbowl, it's a fishbowl, just go around and around and around and around, around the hotels. Mm. There are around 250 hotels in Mauritius, if I'm correct, mm -hmm. with that number. So... Yeah, I think you would survive, but that's what you would end up doing. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of piracy. We were fighting that. And like you have um, PRS for music in England, mm -hmm. over there, there was something that was called the Maza, but um, it's quite um, corrupted. Um, the money of artists that they were collecting, you know, from radios or sales of albums were being stolen mm -hmm. and um so all of that you know you know my, my parents were scared they were they were not they were not comfortable with the idea so i had to i had to go to work so i was doing these albums i was singing as a session singer and singing in hotels there were some jazz clubs well i say jazz clubs there were two jazz clubs on the island at the time mm -hmm. you know where they were playing jazz every saturday or every thursday or something like that twice a week and you'd be lucky you'd be lucky to to get a gig intimately familiar and uh, so i was doing the, the hotel circuit just to fund my piano yeah and i did this for three years mm -hmm. yeah alongside the studio work and going to school and going to college mate this is really yeah. weird. this is literally how i started my career off in india by the way 
the 10 years I lived there. Yeah. I started working as a musician. I signed my first contract as, at 17, started with an apprenticeship at 16 by the time I was working. Mm-hmm. By that time, I was working professionally um, with a very well-established artist in town. Well, actually, uh, um, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he got us this regular gig as part of his working band at the city's, uh, one of the city's most prestigious music clubs, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, we tour every now and then, but it was mostly the whole, I mean, at least half of the music scene, so as to speak, in the city was built on hotels. It was hotel lounges, like the working musician, the ones who were actually making money at the time. And the music landscape changed enormously in India since, by the way, it's one of the biggest industries now, it's one of the top five players. That's a whole different thing. But at the time, this was 96 to 98, I'm talking about. All you did, the only real gigs you played um, as a working musician in town had their entire infrastructure actually kind of based on hotels. Yeah. That's how I saved it for my first recording gear and recording sessions. I would literally save up so I could then hit the studio and rushedly record six songs in a day or something. Wow. <laughs> can very well relate, but uh, okay, your turn again. What happens then? <laughs> Sorry, I keep butting in with my stories in between. But <laughs> that was great. It's great. It's great. It's just quite uncanny, the parallels. I mean, yeah. it was not all bad because I used the, the time, you know, that mm-hmm. was sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, performing in hotels because I was learning new repertoire and that was, you know, my opportunity to actually, you know, learn all these standards, you know, the jazz standards and all that. Oh, yeah. It's a great school. Oh, it's it's great. I got to ask this, though. I mean, Good. again, we are on that specific topic again. Uh, mm-hmm. What was it like? I mean, you, you were this young, beautiful girl in a hotel and I can imagine a lot of your audiences were drunk dudes or whatever. Was it? A, did you have to deal with a lot of misogyny there? In the hotels? No, uh, the clients, no. From the clients, never. Interesting. Actually. Okay. From the clients, it was always, it was always nice, respectful, lovely, normal. Beautiful. So audiences yeah. were always respectful and enjoyed what you were doing. Yes. No, the hotels, they were like, they're like these five-star hotels and stuff. So mm-hmm. you know, these are def- these are tourists. Tourists, expats, gotcha. That's one major difference between uh, my experiences because, um, yeah, a lot of our clientele at the time were just rich locals who had a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily a lot of taste to show for it. If you know what I mean. So, oh, yes, um, I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> Sorry, uh, keep going, keep going. Saturday nights when I was done with the hotel, then I would go to the jazz club. And there we would, you know, explore more, doing more fusion kind mm. of music. That's why I discovered quite a, a few things with myself, my voice and playing with a band that was really adventurous. And musicians were awesome. Really, mm. really, really, really great. So that's where the underground experimentation and the fusion stuff was happening then. Yes, that's where I, you know, and I was young. So I was 15, 16, so I was quite young. Mm. And uh, everybody was, they, they were like veterans to me, you know. Mm. So everybody was a teacher. Beautiful. And that's how I met Lynn Lemart for the first time as well. Bass player. Have you ever asked yourself if you need a mentor? Because I'm pretty sure everyone, including me, does. If you struggle to navigate the nuances of your personal artistic goals with the lifestyle of a professional artist, you're not alone. The amount of self-doubt and rejection we deal with in a day is often more than what other professions are confronted with in years. I've been there. 
So I know. Whether you're starting out on your artistic journey, seeking growth, or just looking to deepen your artistic practice, mentorship can be the key that unlocks those doors to your potential. I've witnessed the transformative impact of mentorship firsthand on my own artistic journey. My mentors have completely changed my life. And it's time for me to return the gesture. I combine my 20 plus years experience as a professional performing artist and educator with my more recent explorations as a certified personal trainer and psychotherapist to offer fellow artists what I call 360 degree mentorship. Not just music lessons, but healthy approaches to artist development, self-care, resilience and clarity in mindsets. Relationship building and unpacking limited beliefs to clear up those myths and get the kind of reality check that will shock you with revelations on how much more you're capable of. My mentorship methodologies are designed to give you the tools, guidance and support to define success on your own terms. But don't take my word for it. Go check out www.holisticmusicianacademy.com and read through what the artists I've been working with have to say. I remember at 15 years old, I told him, you know, I said, I would love to write music with you one day. And uh, what did he say? <laughs> Joking, he said, well, when you manage to gather a million pounds or a million rupees or something and uh, then, then come back. Mm-hmm. And then he, he added, if you manage to leave Mauritius and come to Europe, because he was touring with the Josavino syndicate at the time, and he knew it was a difficult thing. If you manage to do that, come find me and we'll see where you are with your music. Did you meet him later? Yes. Yes, we managed to do to write a few songs together. Amazing. Why was it difficult to leave the island, Rangis? Because unless you have the financial means, you know, and your, pet, your, your, your family has the means to send you to study abroad or you get a, a working contract, some, something like that, it's very difficult because it's expensive. Mauritius is far from everything. And um, my parents did, definitely didn't have the means. It's later on when I had an opportunity at age 18 to go to France for a live, live music contract. After that, I, I met someone who later on became my husband, and he was British. Um, mm. you know, and that's how I end up here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, yes. okay. I did not know about this part. Yes, but you see, um, I was thinking of going to Shanghai at the time. Interesting. Yes, and it was a, a three-year contract. As a musician? As a musician, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, my partner at the time was an investor in Mauritius. Mm-hmm. And um, with the recession in 2018 and everything, well, he decided to come back, you know, decided. Well, he didn't decide, really. Forced in some ways to come back to, to England. And I followed. Gotcha. So you moved to the UK for love. I did. Interesting. I, I did, did not know this. Me. Hmm. Yes. It does sound like the kind of thing you would do, though, in a good way. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I, th- I think I was, I, I could take so many risks at the time, you know. Exactly. That's the one. I'm not saying that I, I wouldn't today. I still can. But at the time, I had a fire in me and a fearlessness mm. that I, when I feel, you know, down in you know today if I, if I when i feel down or when i'm not sure of something you know, i'm not sure of myself you know i i try to go back to that and and write, try to recapture this energy that i had at the time and uh yeah that fearlessness was uh, 
wow, so much power in that, so much energy. And um, I feel like I could uh, face anything, absolutely anything, everything. Amazing. From solitude, which was the hardest thing, actually, solitude. Yeah? Solitude was hard for you? It was when I came to, to England. Oh, right. When I came here, the weather oh, God, got yeah. to me. I don't want to know what it felt like. I can't imagine. I was sick straight away, you know, after three months, Uh physically, mentally, and uh, I was ill from my digestive system to my mind, everything, you know, there was a, I felt like um, all the color yeah. was just drained, gone. Yeah. 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 Intimately familiar. It's the skin, your skin, uh, being covered all the time, uh, you're not receiving sunshine, you're not receiving the goodness, you know, <laughs> of the sun and not walking barefoot. All that, you know, affected oh my, my health God. when I came yeah. here. Hard relate. Yeah, it was it was at times very, very lonely. Yeah, that's a very specific brand of loneliness and isolation. You know, your first long-term stays in Europe, especially UK. UK has its own very, again, like niche brand of loneliness it's a very different kind of island isn't it <laughs> I mean, yeah. you went from one island to another but another. Like two, two islands couldn't be more different from each other i think yes yes and i was not living in london at the time ah. i was living in uh, east redford uh, which was you know in the, in the east midlands of england and it was really you know it was it was cooler over there mm. it was grayer mm. if, you, if you if you will and uh it was the only brown girl in town no way you were the only brown girl in town <laughs> i was i was what was that like <laughs> i was turning heads let's put it this way wow that is <laughs> a lot of heads may i ask which year this was this was in 2008 that, that is mad 2008 you think a brown person would be turning heads in the uk that's so weird yes it's a, it's a little market town People were lovely. Um, and also, you know, um, I think when I listened to, to English, the English language, that was peculiar. When I came here, I couldn't understand people mm. in East Redford. They had a different accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had to ask every time, like, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me. I couldn't, I couldn't get, I didn't get it. Oh, God. Um, because, you know, in Mauritius, we were mostly exposed to the BBC. So that was... The English that I knew mm. and um, Top Gear, mm. <laughs> you know, so that was the kind of uh, the, the, the kind of English that I, I was used to hearing. I can imagine. I mean, new experience. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I mean, London's a whole different thing. You know, there's London and there's UK. For me, they're two different things altogether. <laughs> but that's just me. It's um, and I know I, a lot of people would have their issues uh, with that. But I, I spent some time in North Yorkshire for a while. I was dating someone a few years back, and I would. They uh, um, English is my first language, but on some days I'd really struggle to understand a word or what people would be saying every now and then. And it yeah. was a very, very strange feeling to hey, hang on a second. They're like, this is my first language. How the hell can I not understand what this person is saying? They're speaking the same language I am. It's rarely happened to me. Um, it, it's happened to me in South India every now and then as a kid. Uh, I remember that was a, another another culture shock where I would really struggle to understand the accent because South India has a very very a very strong accent. The, the, but but a lot. you speak Tamil in South India. 
Um, uh, Some and, parts. And English. And English. Uh, I English. mean, English is still official language in India, and especially down south. Um, uh, actually, most people are uh, native English speakers. English. But it's a, it's a dialect, really. Uh, one could argue the way they speak. It's uh, yeah. Some days I'll struggle there too. But um, at least, I mean, in South India, it's still um, an acknowledged dialect in a way because it is mixed with local languages. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, quote unquote, a pure version of the language. Whereas this was in the UK, you know, this was like <laughs> in the Queen's country. And yet I could understand <laughs> about half the sentences most of the people were saying to me. It was a weird feeling. I can really relate. Yeah. I had one month one month to prepare to leave Mauritius, you know. We had to do this quite quickly. And yeah, so it was... Wow, um, one month. Yeah, yeah. May I ask you what you did to prepare yourself? Well, I had to finish an album. <laughs> I was in the middle of, you know, mixing an album. And I basically what happened is that we came to England. We came to London for a month. It was a holiday. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then went back to Mauritius. We went back to Mauritius with equipment so i bought some speakers uh, a new sound card and everything mm-hmm. and um and, and a new audio interface i was ready to start mixing and then we had a letter from the home office and things like that and then we had a month to prepare so i spent that month between spending a bit of time with my family and finishing an album that i was working on wow you really are the quintessential musician aren't you i did not expect that answer so rohang is you 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 found out you were leaving your island to move to a completely different continent in a month what did you do to prepare yourself oh i started finishing my album (laughs) you do realize only musicians would come up with an answer like that (laughs) most people would be like oh i started planning i don't know my itinerary or saying goodbye to my friends and family no let's finish that album first but i so feel you what happens then? You're in the UK and not quite in London just yet. You're uh, you're in a city where you're the only coloured person, turning heads, uh, spending time trying to figure out the local accent. For so between between the 15 year old girl who opened her own label and her own recording studio, and the young woman who made her debut at Ronnie Scott's years late in London, what goes on? What happens in between? Oh my goodness. My goodness, indeed. I mean, what a story. My goodness. Many things, many things. Um, first of all, I think England redefined who I was also. Mm. Um, it gave me a new voice, you know. Um, and I felt like um, here there was, if I worked hard, if I, if, I, if I produced something up to standard, then I would be recognized. You know, I, I wouldn't have to fight um, mm. as as much as I was fighting Mauritius to prove myself, to prove myself and to, you know, and trying to fit in and to be one of the guys and stuff like that. I still do that. I mean, mm. mind you, I still do that because there are still issues, um, but a lot less, you know. So I think England redefined, uh, helped me redefine who I, who I was and it allowed me to sort of get out. Wow. It's an endless journey to you know, the journey of self-discovery. But I think England was definitely a catalyst to, to all of that. I feel more at home London in, in England than I feel in Mauritius now. And um, Yeah, I can relate to that. 
So for the first few years being here, I had an album in hand. Like it was an experimental album that I, I finished uh, mixing and mastering. And then we did some remixes of them, uh, some, some club remixes. And from that, you know, it was played in Ibiza and in clubs and all that, you know. Wow. We promoted it with Mark Loverush, UK. Then I, I put the songs through to songwriting competition. I can't remember mm. the, the name of the competition anymore, but it went into the, you know, as a finalist or semi-finalist, a few of them. I, I can't remember very mm. well now. But that was like my start here. And then trying to get in touch with the people that I knew, in a sense that I knew, I've, I'd, I've met Erika Papale in a recording studio in Mauritius. Awesome. Uh, er Erika Papale. Do, do you know Erika Papale? Rings a bell. Jog my memory, please. He plays bass with uh, Nitin Sony. Right. Yeah. Also with Pat Stevens, Yusuf mm. Islam, Pat Stevens. Mm. And he produced Plan B. He played um, guitar for Nene Sherry, was the musical director for Daniel Beddingfield. Mm. And yeah, so he, he, I met him in Mauritius at the time. And um, I remember he's saying that he lives in London. And if, if I ever come to London, you know, uh, to, to get in touch. So I've tried to, to contact him for, for at least five years. And it was, he was not online. He was not on social media. It was just, I heard that incognito, you know, Bluey. Yeah, yeah. Are you friends with Bluey? Uh, friends? I wouldn't say we're friends. We, we never met in person, actually. We met once, but very, very briefly. So Same I thought, all right, there's two Mauritians that I know, mm. two Mauritians, Brit British Mauritian, you know, mm -hmm. that, I, that I've heard of that I could potentially get in touch. Mm. And um, that came five years later that I reconnected with Erika Papale. Interesting. And during these five years, I went on to study uh, music business, consisted of management, publishing, touring and then I started working with Eric Papule as a manager I became his manager uh -huh. for his band the synergy what was that like those shoes well you see for part of the course was to you know to do a case study mm. you had to invent some kind of band a situation that you would you know create a project out of and the goal was to bring the the product to market. When I got in touch with Eric at the time, he invited me at Real World Studios. He was working on N Natasha Bedingfield's album at the time with David McEwen. And so I went there, we, we connected, we had a nice chat and you know, catch up. And then he told me about his band. And I thought like, wow, you know, that'd be awesome if I took this band um, uh, took charge of the band and, and, you know, and, and helped him to, to bring his music to market and put it as part of my project for, for school as well. So I did. And, you know, through Eric, I connected with a lot of other musicians and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But before that, you see, when I, when I moved to London, I made the acquaintance of a fantastic producer, Mike Collins, and um, he contacted me via LinkedIn. He was looking for a singer who could sing in French. He was doing an album of French songs and he wanted to explore that. And uh, he contacted me and I went for an audition. And he became my first mentor. That's amazing. Yeah. He worked with quite a few people. You know, Light of the World. Uh, rings a bell. Light rings a bell. But... So he was... He, 
he was one of the producers for Light of the World, you know, London Town. It was his funk, British funk. Oh, yeah. Now I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. So that was him. Love this guy. And he, he was one, you know, he, well, one of the, I'd say, if not one of the pioneers. He took me under his wing. Immediately. As a production apprentice? Yes, as an apprentice. Yes. We worked for several months together, refining my voice in studio, different microphones and uh, practicing, 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 recording, recording, recording. Oh, that's interesting. So were you working on practicing on being a studio vocalist or a studio engineer or a little bit of both? Like finding your voice as a studio singer? Yes, I wanted to, to learn more because at the time I was working mainly on my own huh. in Mauritius until I came here, you know, and, and met Mike. Mm. Then I saw the inside of a, but it was still a home studio, but it was state of the art home studio. High end. Yes, it was incredible studio gear and consoles and, uh, and sound. And uh, he, he was the one who actually advised me to, to go and take the course in, uh, in music business here. Mm. He said to me, you are here in a new place. Being as Mauritius doesn't have all of that, it would be great if you actually explored how it all works here mm -hmm. and put yourself in the shoes of a manager to become a manageable artist, to understand where you're putting your feet, to understand the law, to understand your contracts, understand your rights. Sounds like brilliant advice, actually. You're very lucky to have had a mentor like that. Yeah, yes. Sadly, he passed away in uh, 2018. I'm sorry to hear. Said, yes. Oh, that's quite recent. Yes, yes. He was family to me here. When I met him, my life changed. I started to network. He was taking me to gigs and I met a lot of you know, different musicians who came to the studio to record. I met Winston Blissett, who was the bass player of Massive Attack. And, um, you know, and, and wow. just, oh yeah, I met Mark Mondesir as well, the drummer, wow. who I've you know, worked with recently and recorded with. Awesomeness. I met you know, these people through, through Mike and... Um, Yes, that, that really changed my life. That, that took, took things to a different level because now I had my clique of, of, of musicians that I became friends with, I could grow with. That's amazing. That idea he had of your skills at being a more professional artist as a result of seeing things from a manager's lens. How did that plan work out? How, how did you find yourself implementing all the knowledge you learned by being in a manager's shoes? into being a better artist yourself? Well, you see, the difficulties that I encountered as a manager from the artists, and I'll tell you, I was managing a band, mm -hmm. six people. Everybody was a touring musician mm. and everybody was, you know, around the world. Yeah. They were awesome musicians. They were traveling everywhere. They were, they were doing so many things. So to gather them and to put gigs together, place them in different places and, and get the album finished, record videos and all this stuff. It was challenging. Wait, so you were booking for them too? You were their booker as well? Not so much, but I was, you know, behind. So on top of what was happening with the tour plan and the gigs and the dates? Yeah. Gotcha. I had a strategy. So my strategy was to let's get the product to market. Let's, let's find a publisher. Let's release this music. Yes, I was kind of like organizing quite a few things. Mm. The difficulties that I encountered because there are different people, different personalities, different moods, different things oh, happening. Yeah. And um, that helped me understand there are some things that will, I will never do, never con conduct myself in a certain way with a manager. Mm. 
not necessarily be be compliant and, and, and be a doormat or anything like that, no, but conducive, you know, to our plan or strategy yeah. and not be difficult, not create situations that would make their life difficult. Thank you so much for saying that. I think um, the manager slash artist relationship has been one of the most misunderstood uh, borderline toxic and codependent models for the yes. longest time. So many artists out there just think of their managers as their babysitters without realizing it's a full-blown 50-50 collaboration. Your manager can only do so much for you as much as you can do for your manager. Yes, they can't provide the fuel. You have the fuel. Yeah. You have the fuel and you have to set the fire, but you have to consult about setting the fire when where yeah. how yeah exactly. you know and um i remember at some point i became the fuel mm. i was putting so much too much and then that's you know at some point that's when i decided to that's it project is done i did what i was going to say i was going to do so i you know we found a publisher it was released the album was done mm. and then moved on i learned a lot through that process mm. and it was fantastic i have to say so for our listeners if um, and some of our listeners are younger artists or up-and-coming artists or even long-term artists looking for more sustainable ways to build their career what would you say are there five no-goes when working with the manager or if you want to look at it inversely what are the five things you have to make sure you have in place if you're working with a manager you have to have a good idea who you are Mm -hmm. it can be flexible you have to be flexible yeah sure but you have to know who you are. It's not your managers who will decide right. how you're going to present yourself. Brand pillars. Yes. In your observation, what are the worst mistakes when working with managers? I mean, like you said earlier, they, be, they tend to become... Babies? Yes. Dependent. Too dependent. They start to become lazy, I think. Mm, yeah. They think that the manager is a magician. Mm. You need to know where you want to go. What's your goal? Yeah. Where do you want to be? Sounds about right. <laughs> Thank you for answering that. I did sound like a bit of an interviewer there. You did. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. I mean, that's that's a kind of life experience I can't help but take advantage of. So at this point, you've gotten yourself legit street cred. You've gotten yourself an education. You've been mentored by one of the best. And you're all set to go build your artist brand, build your own artistic career on your own terms. How did you go about it? What were your first steps? Well, I think I needed a project that would have a continuity to it. Mm. Um, so that was the, my first step trying to find my voice trying to find a story mm-hmm. you know through my through my own life the album that I just finished you know, during the lockdown Evasio mm-hmm. for instance that, that took me around 10 years wow things happened you know stopped for two years I couldn't do it because I, I, w- I was also the carer of Mike he had MS and he had cancer I had to look after him for, for a couple of years and on and off. I, I put the album, I didn't work on it at all. Wow, that sounds very intense. Mad respect. After all of that, now they come back to me in the night. Mm-hmm. Because 10 years ago, we reconnected here in London. He was playing at Ronnie Scott's. And so I went to the gig. And then that was the, the point where he was like, play me your music. There was nothing that I had at the time that I, I was really really proud to show him to play for him mm. but then when um but he said to me a long time ago like you'd love to to do something together do you have anything for me you know he was very blunt like that do you have anything for me nice. i was like no i i don't actually he said to me 
why, why don't you have anything for me? Nice. And I said to him at the time, and I'm confused in what, in what language to sing in. Interesting. I'm not sure whether to, to sing Creole, French, or English. Now, French, my first language. Mm-hmm. Creole is my mother tongue. And then I spoke more French than English. But I, I had a different connection with the languages. And I remember I, I did write one song in Creole years before that. I find this unacceptable, he said to me. And I find this un- unacceptable. Was he serious? Yeah, yeah, he was. He's very blunt. Huh. And he said to me, well, do you, you do have stories, right? I said, yes, I do. I do have stories, but I am, I'm not sure. I'm confused. And um, it, some, somehow when I start to think about it, it creates a blockage in me. And I can't, I can't put anything on a piece of paper. I end up writing instrumental music instead. Hmm. And I can't put lyrics. There's only that one tune that I wrote in, in Creole. And uh, he's, he was shocked and a little bit, I could see the disappointment a little bit. And he went, okay, why don't we put the keyboard on, take a microphone and let's jam. Hmm. That was Linde Mart. I was scared. Hmm. I was really worried. Because he said to me, if you don't come up with a story right now, in any, any language, if you don't come up with a story right now, I will leave and you will never see me again. Wow, no pressure. No pressure. And uh, I remember my tears were rolling in my eyes. I was petrified. And you were like, okay, go, let's, let, let's, let's, let, let's do this. Let's do this. Hmm. What are you waiting for? And I, I had to shake myself, you know, I had to shake myself, swallow my tears and put myself in this state of mind that I can do it. Mm. It's now or never. I have to prove myself. I have to prove that I, you know, I have these stories and I have a voice. It has to flow. We started the jam. A few minutes later, having composed myself and I let everything go. It's like I had nothing to lose, you know. And I, because I knew that if I let fear take over me, it would block me. It would block me. So I thought, okay, I, I have to let everything go. Now, right now, now is the time to do it. Mm. And I started singing and I let everything go. We started to go for it. Suddenly I started singing in Creole. And I was telling this beautiful stories from my childhood Amazing. you know describing the the bay of grongo being the north of the island where i used to live the sounds i would hear the birds the the sands that and all this coming in in creole poetry and there it was we jammed for 20 minutes like that and after we we were done he turned or he stopped he turned around and said there you go you have it you have it all, he said to me, hmm. right there. You have it all. The emotion is there. I can, I can feel the, 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 that you, you are inside. You are inside of the music. You're not thinking. So there you go. Don't worry. Start writing. You got it. Amazing. And then I, I thought that would represent the first 10 years of my life in Mauritius as a child. Go there. Go to, to these memories. And, uh, and take the stories from there. And that was it. So my adventure with Evasio started right there with this ultimatum. 
Well, quite from Lindley March. <laughs> quite, quite the beginning. I mean, that that traces so much history, like from from the young girl on the island who meets this legendary musician to the reunion, almost a decade later, where he literally kind of puts you in the situation where you can't help but write the first song for your album. That's that's quite interesting. You went back to Mauritius recently, and you went back as a very well-respected and celebrated artist in residence at a major festival, at a major international festival. That must have been huge. At a personal level, it was the first time you were back in Mauritius, correct me if I'm wrong, since you moved to the UK? Yes. And yes. I mean, I can't even 13 imagine. Years. 13 years. Yeah. I can't even imagine what the feeling must have been like, especially after the pandemic and so... So what was it like for you on a personal level, reconnecting with all your friends and family? And what was it like for you as an artist to kind of return at an entirely different phase of your career and thriving as an artist as well? Well, that was quite something prior to that show. And that was at the um, Mama Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. So they invited me to to open the festival mm -hmm. together with Thomas as a duo. Mm -hmm. And um, when I received the news... And we, were, we started preparing for the show because we revamped our whole repertoire and we put the music that me and Thomas were perform performing as a band, as a duo, and then some of the songs from Evasio. So the Creole songs, some English songs as well. Yeah. I had butterflies from dawn till dusk hmm. for a month. Wow. Can you imagine that? It's never happened to me. Wow, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, but it doesn't surprise me though. I mean, it, there was so much to unpack. <laughs> being away from i don't know if it's still home to you but being away from where your journey started for that long yes also being at a, such a different stage of your career i can imagine when you left the island there were a lot of naysayers that tends to be the pattern of these things funnily enough you know when i left mauritius i had tunnel vision mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. i remember when i went back uh, to sort out my visa my spousal visa mm -hmm. I did a concert like a farewell concert and I remember getting a review that was not very kind you see and mm -hmm. they, they said like oh there she's confused she doesn't know what she's doing it's jazz but we don't understand it I don't mm -hmm. we don't understand why she's doing jazz basically mm -hmm. that was the last you know, review that I had it was only one it was one newspaper interesting the rest was fine and then people magazine gave me a cover and it was to celebrate me to wish me well on my, my travels to to Europe hmm. so I, I left the country with that I left all the negativity there hmm. I was like you know oh no I, I know I know what I'm doing I know where I'm going I it's up to me to decide how my life is going to turn out I love the sound of that people were, were asking to to come for many, many years, you know. But then when they invited me for this show, I felt ready for it. Hmm. May I ask you why you waited 13 years to visit? That's a long time. Um, oh, there's a few reasons for that. Um, when I had money, I didn't have the time. Or I had to stay for, for certain reasons. You know, when I had the time, I didn't have the money. That, that sort of thing. You know, it was on and off like that. Or sometimes I, I just... Gotcha. I wasn't. I was not ready to go there because of there's certain things I didn't want to face. For example, you know, family conflicts and things like that. I just needed the the distance, mm. really. Um, mm. So I I preferred to yeah. to stay here. And also, Evasio required me. You know, required me to stay here because it, it needed to be built on 
not only on pain, but on nostalgia, mm. on memories. And I felt like if I went before the album was finished, then I would some, somewhat ruin um, something, the magic. Wow. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I could have gone on holiday, but I, I just didn't want didn't to do it. Wow. You just made me realize a lot of things. It was painful. I left India when I was 19. Uh, and even though I, I spent only about 12 years there, um, it wasn't the first part of my life. It was like my adolescence and pre-adolescence. But I remember leaving with a mission similar to what you described. Yeah. This is a one-way ticket. I'm all in and music is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't come back for the first couple of years, but then I would st- start traveling frequently and at the time I was even touring and I realized now in hindsight 23 years later that uh, it didn't help with the clarity this constant back and forth you know I think I would have done my career a little little more justice if I'd made a clearer call on where uh, my music really has its home because my music, um, I think at this point, I can safely say mo- the majority majority of its home, at least in the present, is in Europe. <laughs> I don't think I play Indian music, even though there might be a connection <laughs> somewhere. Um, I'm definitely a very, very much a European product. And uh, I think the constant traveling in between did not help me reach that conclusion uh, as quickly as I could have. I don't think this would resentment but i can completely understand the why behind oh. this decision of yours it it was a bit of an eye opener for me right now and i also like really salute the dedication you have to your music to kind of make that call that's not an easy decision to make to stay away that long no it's not it's not at all it's not at all oh my gosh wow the fuel was the memories the fuel was I the pain the fuel was yeah. the the detachment from that place. Because if I went there, it would break the spell. Because evasio in itself means like, a, yeah, an escape to there. Yeah. An escape yeah. to that tropical place, and to my childhood mm. memories, basically. So when I listen to these songs, they take me there, take me to Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> How are you now with Mauritius? Do you think you, you're in a new phase in your life? You're starting to make peace with that part of your past? Yes, now I feel I can move on. I can move on to a different stage, different type of composition a different mentality uh, altogether i feel like the next album will be an evolution of evasio definitely more minimal however minimalism has an intimate correlation with clarity yes <laughs> <laughs> yes you see when i went there it was like an explosion of emotions an explosion of everything mm-hmm. um when we arrived uh, there the first week was media we spent a lot of time with the media and I realized how much wow. um, it, it was a bit like going down memory lane, you see, uh, because I remember these these times. Mm-hmm. The welcome was so amazing. So much love, so much love there. I didn't expect that, you see. I didn't, I didn't expect that at all. Mm. I didn't think that um, they would um, write such beautiful things about me. They were really proud of me. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Yeah, it's very humbling. At the show, I told them, I said, I come to you today with so much humility. I'm, I'm still a little girl. I, I come here with that, li- that, that the spirit of that little girl who lives, who used to live by the sea. 
and he used to run barefoot on the beach in her, in her garden and uh, singing to the wind, singing in the wind. That's, that's, that's me, and this is who I am today. Sure, I, I've evolved and I've done wow. various things and I have different titles and whatnot. You, you can call me, I'm a singer, composer, producer, uh, radio host or, and whatnot, but here right now, I'm this little girl, and thank you for welcoming me. That is very powerful. At some point, I felt really disconnected from the culture there. Couldn't relate to certain things. And there is still some things that I can't relate to. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I am angry. I, I want to save the musicians there. I want to do something for them. I want to do something for the artists there. So they know their rights and they can, they can flourish. They have status. Mm -hmm. So many things that I want to do for them, and it, it angers me that the government is the way that it is. So I tried to put this aside for many years. I thought I will study my ass off. I will learn as much as I can and acquire as, as, as many skills and, and knowledge as possible so I can go there, have a voice and do something, say something, empower them in some ways. So I think all of that was necessary in some ways. It was, it was really important for me to stay away from the island. Mm. I kept in touch with the people that work in the Maza or, you know, there are some artists that I know they, they're fighting for artists' rights. I always keep in touch with them to know what's going on and trying to inspire them in some ways and tell them it's going to be okay. Keep doing what you're doing. The next generation is going to benefit from that. Unfortunately, we are the ones that have to sacrifice your contribution to empowering the youth of today will help the next generation soon. And I'm coming soon, so wait for me. Amazing. <laughs> That's a very noble cause to dedicate your life to. But you see, when I think about what happened during the lockdown, for example, we were really lucky here in England. Mm -hmm. When you compare it to what was happening in Mauritius, these musicians were getting mm -hmm. almost nothing, nothing from the government, no help whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I know musicians who had to go in and do completely different jobs. They had to re leave what they were doing. Yeah. Really amazing musicians. I was heartbroken, really, really heartbroken. Yeah. So when I think about me being there and doing what, I, what I'm doing here, and it's already difficult here. It's not easy here either. It's not like, you know, it's a walk in the park. Mm -mm. You know, it's treacherous. It's a treacherous road over there. And sometimes, you know, people die on the way. I investigated and to understand what's going on, how things have evolved and whether things have evolved. Um, certain things have and certain things still not, but it's slightly better than it used to be. What kind of evolution would you like to see in the arts ecosystem? I would like to see something like a union for musicians, mm. not affiliated to the government, where artists can have advice, real advice, courses on their rights to understand mm -hmm. the various ways you, you can earn a living you can make money out of your art mm -hmm. out of your music and of course with the internet today it's, it's a lot easier but the fact that an artist over there it's so difficult for them to just move to a different country to just go and perform mobility and i was having a similar conversation with um, an arts manager from South India a couple of weeks back and we were talking about uh, how even as an artist at some point you realize that you're not immune to your environment. No, no, no. 
if you're diligently making enough progress on your career, you will, you're bound to come to a point where you realize that it's time for me to return to the ecosystem. Because if I don't, it doesn't even have to be a philanthropic lens. At some point, quality of our own careers as artists is dependent on how much we are doing for our environment as well. Yes. Nobody's really immune to the ecosystem they're occupying, no matter at which rung of the ladder you're at. Yes. You see, the thing is that when it's lawless, there's no system in place. You have to create the system. Yeah. And that's where they are. Yeah. That's where they are. Yeah. It's such a mindfuck <laughs> if, you're, um, if you're based in a country like the UK or Germany even, where the system is so well established in comparison to many other parts of the world, where even getting a hang for the system is hard work. You know, it's one thing for a system to exist. It's another to learn how to navigate it. It's actually work. <laughs> You really, like you, put in the work to educate yourself on how to actually find your space um, in the system and how to know what to do and um, use it for your benefit. And that extreme where uh, it's it's a constant educational thing where you always have to keep up with what you need to do. And the other extreme where there's no system whatsoever and everyone's just winging it. It is. It is the Wild West. It's madness. Between the Wild West and the cerebrally, uh, almost near neurotic civilized uh, forms of systematic art history, it, it can be quite, uh, quite schizophrenic, really, uh, the risk of using a somewhat volatile term. And so, like, you can export yourself. You don't have to be physically there, but you can, you can have a manager that lives in America. Why not? You can have a manager that is Absolutely. not from here. So, it's, it's you know... Uh, so there's various things like that that it doesn't mean that because you're there things have to be, to remain there yes we live in a location independent world now yeah and uh, i know the pandemic's kind of hyper focused its presence in a way but it actually we've had we've had access to location independent collaboration for a while now we've just, a lot of us has just been just been lazy not to have made the best out of it and it's high time we kind of wake up to these possibilities and make sure we're using it uh, for our benefit. I don't want to say using it to our advantage because that sounds a little um, contriving. That's that's not what I'm getting at. But just to make sure that we use these resources out there. They're just waiting to be used and waiting to be um, embraced, rather. And it's imperative that artists... Uh, from all around the world, do it. So much of the system has been flattened now, thanks to the internet. It's not all good. There are downsides to it too. Sure. <laughs> Rangis, um, before we taper off, I have one last question for you. Um, yes, my dear. <laughs> uh, one, what was Ronnie Scott's like? I mean, that's a big one. <gasps> Tell me about your Ronnie Scott's debut and the come around. We have about five minutes left. I'm sorry I've waited this long to put it in, but I can't let you go without talking about Ronnie Scott's. Yeah, no. Um, Ronnie Scott's was epic, was epic. And I was very honored to be sharing the stage with Thomas Bura, Mark Mondesier and Lawrence Cottle. Mm, what a lineup. Yeah, we, we did the late show. Beautiful. And then we did the, the, the online streaming mm -hmm. during the lockdown. And then we went and did like a, a main show with uh, together featuring uh, Guthrie Govan. So much emotions, obviously. Um, you don't believe that you're actually doing that. <laughs> it's, um, mm -hmm. yes, it's mind blowing. It, it is such an important gig. It, for me, I can talk for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was not something I will ever forget. For years, 
Ronnie Scott's jazz club was something I've seen in, you know, in documentaries. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I know. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's Ronnie Scott's, man. Just, just walking in there, first off, when I arrived in London, that was one of the first things I did. I want to go and see Ronnie Scott's. Mm-hmm. So I went. And that was already surreal. Playing there is another level of surrealness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How, how would you say it's, was it just the idea of playing at that venue or was it actually like different? Well, you know that, you know that the audience present are a very, we say pointu in French, you know, they are very, very attentive. They, they know. Oh, yeah. They know. And yeah. uh, that was, and it's, for, for me, for some reasons, I, 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 when I started singing, I started singing on, on quite big stages in front of thousands of people. Um, for me, a little club is so intimate mm. and it's so close to people also. Yeah. So that was a little bit daunting. Yeah. E- it's not easy music. It's not like, you know, it, it, you've got to be super attentive. Everything is, is going mm. on fifth gear. It starts on fifth gear. It ends on fifth gear. Yeah. It, it went really fast, to be honest. It was just like, it's not, it's not an experience that you forget. And I can't wait to get to, to, to get back there. Hopefully with Evasio, hopefully with Thomas's music. Shout out to Thomas, by the way. Yes, yes. It's cool. Thank you. Ruangis, we have exactly about two minutes left. We're kind of over, but I have one audience question here. Okay. I just realized some of them have been addressed already, but this one oh, keeps coming up and I'd, um, I'd like to um, definitely have your take on this. Um, well, I'm going to rephrase ever so slightly. Basically, it addresses uh, your thoughts on safety for women in the women's uh, in the music industry. Your, how, what are your tips to keep safe? Um, all and uh, slash how best establishing credibility as a producer as a woman because that's still something that faces a good degree of discrimination in the music industry sometimes right yeah which one do you want me to go for it's kind of the same questions from the same person so well you're you know your your call any way you feel free appropriate to answer because i'm guessing this is a woman asking yes i'm still establishing myself as a producer right now because i remember when i started to to mix the music I was doing, I'm doing with Thomas, for example, when he played it to some people, they assumed that he did it, all of it, and the singer. Mm. It's not always easy. I think the industry at the moment is made up of only 5% of women who are producers. Mm. Yeah, I'm not only like, you know, an engineer and sitting in the studio, I'm also a singer. So I think people see me as a singer primarily. Yeah, it is a very challenging, demanding position you're navigating because usually producers tend to be behind the scenes kind of people, whereas performers slash artists will be more in the forefront. Yes. It's rare for people to do both the way you are. I mean, I do it too, but I'm not a woman and I'm not dealing with the inherent discrimination women usually have to deal with. Um, So it is quite a lot that's being demanded of you. Yes. And you know, there are different kinds of producers as well. Exactly. So true. For example, when I worked on Ivasio with Eric, Eric did the mixing on his side and I was directing everything. I knew exactly what I wanted. Mm, yeah. So basically I was there just directing. Okay, less EQ here, mm. less this here, more this, more of that. Thank you for saying that. And people often tend to mix up the roles of mixing engineer and producer as well. That is actually the kind of yeah. the quintessential role of the producer, like just kind of have the la- basically you're 
kind of like the studio MD yeah. or uh, you know, <laughs> basically the person who gets to have the last call. And the safety for women in cool. the industry and what your thoughts on this? I have a method like that I found for myself and that's being one being it. one of the guys. Interesting. I love it. Okay. Oh, that's going to ruffle a few feathers. I know, I know, I know that's going to but that's my way. Yeah. That's my way of dealing with it, you know. Um I I become oh. one of the guys. I am so I'm a chameleon. Hmm. So I don't have any problems adapting to a situation, to a place, or to the people around me to to make things flow. When I'm in a working environment, I am careful about what I wear, how I sit, and how I conduct myself. I encounter more men than women in the industry. So I there, there's a quite a debate about this thing, but yeah. I personally feel comfortable to be one of the guys and to make everybody feel comfortable. I, I don't have a problem with that yeah. at all. Not to hijack tell what me. you're saying, but I do find, first of all, thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. I think um, I personally find it very uh, resonant that you just kind of stick to your guns and just be open about your approach to it. Everybody's different. It's an individual choice. Yeah, for me, there is a place for everything. There is a, a way to conduct yourself, um, you know, that I sort of, I, I like. I can become many things. Absolutely. And that's, that is your right to do so. Mm. Uh, not that you needed me to confirm that, just to just to clarify. I also find it really resonant that, I mean, the way I interpret it, again, um, not to hijack this or not to mansplain, basically be the person you're comfortable being. Yes. That's... Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that doesn't that, say, I mean, recently I had, I mean, if we have time still, I can explain very, very quickly. I had to leave, I had to leave a, you know, I, I can't give too many details about this, but um, I was subject to sexual harassment. Shit, I'm sorry. In a very, very serious way. And um, I had to leave um, a project, a very big project. And I had to leave that. And it's, it's, a, it's a pity. I'm really sorry to hear. Sometimes, you know, you, you don't have control. Mm-hmm. You have control over what you do, how you are, how you conduct yourself. But you don't have control over the person in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it happens. It's, it's a pity that it does, but it does. Since I've been in, in London, that was the first time I had to leave a project. Well, I'm really sorry I had to go through that. I mean, a, a lot of the artists I work with, uh, mentor as well, happen to be younger women in their earlier 20s or even, you know, uh, older. It is, I, I wish I did, I wasn't saying this, but it is not funny how common this is. It is, music is such an intimate space, you know, it's so easy for someone to exploit it. It's just a very, very... Uh, it's a bad move to break that code, you know, to, to exploit that vulnerability of a co-artist is really not very good karma at all. And uh, I shouldn't comment without knowing details about this, but for my listeners, uh, all I can say is just, you know, just, it is so imperative to respect the intimacy of music without projecting anything uh, inappropriate onto it. What's your source of sustenance to keep on moving? What, what, what do you, where do you find your energy when uh, something like this comes across you? Because these things can be vampires for your energy, right? Yes, it took me several months to get over that. Mm-hmm. It required me talking a lot to the people that I love, the, my friends, 
to be open about it because it was very embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And I felt like uh, hmm. maybe I encouraged this. Maybe I did something. Maybe I said something. Maybe there was something, you know, um, I allowed this to happen. Lots of guilt. But talking it through and try to put the guilt and the shame away. My source of sustenance, as you, as you asked, was, you know, talking, talking about it and do a lot of meditation. Goodness, meditation. I think what sustained me also was more music, <laughs> new music, more music. Mm. And being supported by, by friends, you know, by loving friends and, and family and, and colleagues. Yeah. But there, there are beautiful projects in the pipeline. I'm writing new music with Thomas Bura, so he's um, writing some incredible music and I can't wait to release Evasio and... Uh, mm. Rurangis, no, it means a lot to me that we finally made this happen. Uh, this is, I think, I think this is our third re attempt uh, at recording. Doesn't say a lot about us as producers, is it? You think two music producers would be better at doing I know. This? But tr took us three know, attempts to finally like, nail this. I'm so glad we made it happen, though. Yes, no, it was wonderful. Thank you very much. I think now the next step is ju just to get together and do some music, you know? Hell yeah, hell yeah. We're going to have to make sure we get to that sometime soon. Once we're, uh, once we have a little more, uh, it looks like we're both dealing with some major deadlines here at the moment. But um, I'm to totally holding a candle to that vision. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. Well, having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in the